Revelation 11.5 And if anyone wants to harm them This is really cool To make for a great movie If anyone wants to harm them Fire flows out of their mouth And devours their enemies That's some serious halitosis right there So if anyone wants to harm, harm them He must be killed in this way These have the power, verse 6, to shut up the sky so that the rain will not fall during the days of their prophesying. They have the power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every plague as often as they desire. Awesome prophets dressed in sackcloth. Someone crosses them, man, they open their mouth and fire spews out. They can stop the rain. They can bring about blood in the waters. They can plague the earth and all these things, gang, These two amazing prophets weave together Old Testament prophecies and mysteries in a way that's absolutely stunning. Look back at Revelation chapter 10, verse 7. Speaking, I believe, of the scriptures, it says, In the days of the voice of the seventh angel, when he is about to sound, then the mystery of God is finished or complete, as he preached to his servants the prophets. Through his servants, the prophets, the indication gang in chapter 11 is that the two witnesses will be clearly expressing now the mysteries of Old Testament prophecy as complete in Jesus. Standing there in the courtyard, they're in Jerusalem, preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, saying, look, look at this. Look back at the prophecy of Zechariah. Look back at the prophecies of Isaiah. What did Isaiah say was going to happen when the Son of Man, when, when the Son of God came to earth? And describing it and explaining it in a way people can understand. And blowing people away with their understanding and their wisdom. And it kind of, kind of shades of the road to Emmaus. It's kind of like Emmaus. Remember that story after the resurrection of Christ? Two guys are walking along and they're headed for Emmaus. And they're confused by all that they've heard. They've seen the tragedy in Jerusalem, the crucifixion of the one they thought was going to be their Messiah. His death, his burial, he's gone. And yet suddenly, word is out. That morning, these two guys had heard that some of the women went to the tomb and Jesus' body wasn't there. And so these two guys are walking along and they're talking about everything. I mean, it's the news of the day, the breaking news. And as they're discussing these things, a man comes up and begins talking to him. We know it's Jesus. They don't know it yet. But the Bible tells us, and it's amazing to me, this is one conversation I would love to be a fly on the shoulder of one of these guys, just listening in. You know, It tells us in Luke 24, 27, that Jesus, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. See, by the way, side note, that's what we're doing in our Old Testament study. That's why we're still in the book of Numbers. You know this by now. If you've been going through these studies at all, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, on into Deuteronomy, and all the Old Testament, why would a Christian church spend so much time there? Because what we're trying to do is what Jesus did on the road to Emmaus. Explain and see Jesus in the Old Testament. All the old prophecies, everything that points to Him. And understand that's exactly what the Word does. And that's what these two witnesses will do. They will explain the word in, a, in an amazing, amazing way. So who are these two witnesses? Who are these guys? I mean, they're pretty impressive. Obviously prophetic. Obviously empowered by the Holy Spirit. Doing amazing things. Who are these guys? The uh, Bible Knowledge Commentary gives this quote. It says, Numerous and varied interpretations have been given concerning the two witnesses. Some have suggested that they are not literal individuals at all. Which is interesting to me because as we read, it, read on, you'll see that they have to be literal individuals. Because they die. 
things happen to them. They interact. They speak. This is, talk, this is not talking about some vagary, some spiritual thing that, that's not real. This is literal, guys, and it's clearly literal, talking about two great prophets dressed in sackcloth, preaching, and causing all these miraculous things to happen. I heard a, a non-literal interpretation uh, recently, a couple of years back actually, that these two witnesses are the Old Testament and the New Testament. Now this, when you hear this kind of thing, it tends to be someone who's trying to take the book of Revelation and squeeze it into a paradigm or, or, a, or a belief system to make it work for them. Because there can't be two actual witnesses because that would indicate that there might really be an actual tribulation, which would indicate that there might actually be a true millennium, which would indicate, oh no, the whole thing's literal and my whole belief system is shot. But you see, gang, when you try to twist it, it makes no sense. It makes no sense. As we'll again see momentarily, these two witnesses are going to be martyred. How in the world do you martyr the Old Testament and the New Testament? When was the Old Testament martyred? When was the New Testament? Or how could the New Testament be killed? Oh, well, the Bible will be shut up and, and people won't be able to read the Bible. And that's how it's going to happen. And the two witnesses will be silenced. But then they're going to rise back to life. The Old Testament's going to rise? This is talking specifically about two fiery prophets who will shake things up from Jerusalem and around the whole world. Again, again, these witnesses will be martyred, but we know the word of God has never been martyred. Jesus says, not one dot, not one iota from the law will pass away until I have accomplished all things. And we know that everything is fulfilled in Jesus. You cannot shut the mouth of God. Well, who are these witnesses? Again, I, there, there's one that I believe we can know with some certainty. And we're going to say some certainty to these because the witnesses can be anyone that God wants them to be. But I think we have some really interesting indication here, some clear indication, and some of you know where I'm going with this. Witness number one, I believe, will be Elijah. I do believe it will be Elijah, and there's some very compelling reasons for that. Number one, verse five tells us that fire flows out of their mouths. Fire flows out of their mouths, and Elijah had the power of fire. Oh, you mean over the prophets of Baal? No, I mean another time. Look in your Bibles. Flip back to 2 Kings, 2 Kings chapter 1. 2 Kings chapter 1. And this is such a cool story. One of so many that I can't wait to get to that we're eventually going to get to in our Old Testament studies, but we get to take a peek at right now. 2 Kings chapter 1, long about verse 10. Now, a little background to this. Ahaziah is the king of Samaria at the time. And he's got some issues. He's got some problems with the Lord. And, and he's not wanting to listen to the Lord. And it tells us basically that, uh, well, let's go back a little bit. The messengers were sent out by Ahaziah to find some things out. And uh, Elijah had said, Ahaziah, you're going to die. You're, you're out of here. You're done. And so it says, along about verse 5, we'll pick it up there. When the messengers returned to him, to Ahaziah, he said to them, why have you returned? And they said to him, a man came up to meet us and said, go return to the king who sent you and say to him, thus says the Lord. Is it because there's no God in Israel that you're sending to inquire of Baalzebub, the god of Ekron? Therefore, you shall not come down from the bed where you have gone up, but you shall surely die. Ahaziah, he says to these messengers, What kind of man was he who came up to meet you and spoke these words to you? And they answered him, 
He was a hairy man <laughs> with a leather girdle bound about his loins. And he said, it's Elijah. <laughs> he knew immediately. I guess Elijah must have been pretty hairy. He knew who it was, Elijah the Tishbite. So verse 9, the king sent him to him a captain of 50 with his 50. So he sent a small army of guys out to get Elijah. You go get him and you bring him back. And he said to him, the captain did, O man of God, the king says, come down. And Elijah replied to the captain of the 50, If I'm a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your 50. Then fire came down from heaven and consumed him and his 50. Boom. So those guys were fired from their job. Verse 11. So he again sent to him another captain of 50 with his 50. Then he said to him, O man of God, thus says the king, come down quickly. This is now the second group sent out. Then Elijah replied, If I'm a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your 50. Then the fire of God came down from heaven and consumed him and his 50. So now they get pink slipped, and you got the next group coming along. Verse 13, he again sent the captain of a third 50 with his 50, and this absolutely cracks me up. When the third captain of 50 went up, he came and bowed down on his knees before Elijah and begged him and said to him, Oh man of God, please let my life and the lives of these 50 servants of yours be precious in your sight. Behold, fire came down from heaven and consumed the first two captains of fifty with their fifties. But now, let my life be precious in your sight. And the angel of the Lord said to Elijah, Go down with him, do not be afraid of him. So he arose and went down with him to the king. Elijah had great power. If I'm a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume you. And the prophet, one of the two prophets in Revelation 11, had power over fire. The fire of his mouth, boom, could just take people out. Sounds like Elijah, but there's more. There's more. Revelation chapter 11, verse 6, tells us that these had the power to shut up the sky so that rain would not fall during the days of their prophesying. Elijah did the same thing. Elijah shut up the heavens. Does anybody, by the way, it's in 1 Kings 17, but if you've heard the story about Elijah shutting up the heavens, do you remember how long he shut the heavens up for rain? Three and a half years. Three and a half years. Exact same amount of time that these prophets will be prophesying. So the prophet, if it is Elijah, in the time of the tribulation, shuts up the sky from rain. Same amount of time that Elijah in the Old Testament did it. Interesting. James chapter 5, by the way, verse 17, tells us Elijah was a man just like us. It's no different than you. It's no different than me. He was just a man. But he was a witness. And he had the Spirit of the Lord God living in him, residing in him. Tells us he prayed earnestly that it would not rain. And it did not not rain on the earth for three and a half years. For three years, six months. That's 1,260 days, 42 months. Same as the last half of the tribulation. Third thing to notice, not only did Elijah have power of fire, not only did Elijah shut up the heavens, but Elijah never died. He never died. He just went up. Hebrews chapter 9 verse 27 says, Inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment, so Christ also, having been offered to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin to those who eagerly await him. But Elijah, Elijah went up. The story is he went up in a fiery chariot. 
While Elisha, his, his second in command, his, he would follow Elijah. Elisha watched and up he went in this amazing fireball chariot. Elijah was raptured. Which I think would be a really cool way to go, by the way. I mean, I want to be raptured when we talk about this. We're going to meet him in the class. But wouldn't it be cool if I said, oh, chariot's here. And we look outside the horses are on fire and the chariot's on fire. And I get on board. All right, let's go. And off he goes. And that's what happened for Elijah. He never died. But gang, listen to this. Long after, long after Elijah went up in that fiery chariot, the prophet Malachi prophesied the following. Malachi chapter 4 verse 5. Behold, I am going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. Elijah had already died. God had already sent Elijah the prophet once. But now Malachi says, no, listen, listen, he's coming back. I am going to send Elijah the prophet before the great and terrible day of the Lord. By the way, just another little side note. And you can look this up and check it out on your own. The last sentence of the Old Testament is a curse. Whereas the last sentence of the New Testament is a blessing. The Old Testament ends with a curse. Malachi, I'm going to send Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. The New Testament ends in grace. Revelation 22 verse 21. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. Isn't that cool? Anyway, back to Elijah. How do we really know? And you might even say, okay, wait a minute. I I understand that about Elijah, the prophecy of Malachi, that Elijah's going to come. But wasn't that John the Baptist? I thought John the Baptist was that picture of Elijah, was the Elijah persona who came. Watch this. Pay close attention. Luke chapter 1, verse 17. An angel said to Zacharias, who was John the Baptist's father, It is he who will go out as a forerunner before him, listen, in the spirit and power of Elijah. He doesn't say it's Elijah. Malachi said Elijah's going to come. The angel said to Zacharias, I'm going to send one in the spirit and power of Elijah. That's your son, John. Your son, John, is going to be like Elijah. Matthew chapter 17, verse 9. And this one you need to pay real close attention to. You might even flip there if you'd like to. Matthew 17, verse 9. Matthew 17, 9. They had seen Jesus transfigured on the mountain. In that powerful scene when Peter put his, put his foot in his mouth and wanted to build tabernacles, you know, shelters for both Moses and Elijah and Jesus. And after the fact, as they're coming back down... Jesus commanded in Matthew 17, verse 9, saying, Tell no one the vision until the Son of Man has arisen from the dead. In other words, guys, keep this to yourselves. You don't want to tell anybody you saw what you just saw until after the resurrection. Now, they, even at this time, didn't understand what he meant. It must have been spiritual. Jesus was obviously talking literally. And his a- disciples asked him, they said, Why? Why do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? Listen to Jesus' words. Elijah is coming and will restore all things. But I say to you that Elijah already came. And they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they wished. So also the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. And the disciples understood that he had spoken to them about John the Baptist. So we read that verse, we hear that and we say, oh, okay. So Jesus is saying that John the Baptist is Elijah. 
Because Elijah has come and they did whatever they wanted to him. And the apostles understood that was John the Baptist. So Elijah's coming was fulfilled already in John the Baptist, right? We're done. So we can move on. Not so fast. John chapter 1, verse 19 says, This is the testimony of John when the Jews sent to him priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask who he was. Okay, John, the author of the Gospel of John, is now telling us about John the Baptist and what he said. The scribes, the, the Jewish leaders, the priests, the Levites, they went and they said to John the Baptist, Who are you? What did he say? Verse 20 of John chapter 1. He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? Listen to his answer. I am not. I am not. John the Baptist, this fiery witness in his own right, he says, I'm not the Elijah that was prophesied to come. That's not me. He is, yes, the forerunner of Messiah, but he's not Elijah. And the Bible says, Malachi says, Elijah will come. But when did Malachi say Elijah would come? Before the time of grace brought on by Jesus? No. Before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. Remember the first time Jesus came, he came in grace. He came to save. The second time he comes, he comes as the great king in the glorious and terrifying day of the Lord. And that, Malachi says, is when Elijah will come. Elijah will come before that happens. That's what's going on in Revelation chapter 11. That's why I believe it is Elijah that we're talking about. Listen again to what Jesus said specifically in Matthew 17. I want to read it one more time. Listen to his wording. It's important. Elijah is coming and will restore all things. But I say to you, Elijah already came. He says two things about Elijah. Elijah already came, but he also said Elijah is coming. When did Jesus say that? After John the Baptist had died. John the Baptist has already gone off the scene. And Jesus says, Elijah is still coming. John is a picture of Elijah. He was like Elijah. He was in the spirit of power of Elijah. But he is not Elijah. Elijah will come before the great and glorious day of the Lord. I believe the first of these two witnesses is absolutely Elijah. Because the Bible tells us he's still coming before that day. What about the second witness? Some have suggested some different people. Some have said maybe Enoch. Because again, Enoch was that first prophet we talked about. And he prophesied the second coming of the Lord. And Enoch also, like Elijah, never died. He was raptured. You remember, remember that? It said Genesis 5 where, where Enoch is just walking along and the Bible says and he was no more because he went home with God. Just gone. We were talking about that just a little while ago. Cheryl and I and her mom were just saying, wouldn't that be cool? You're out with a walk with God. And he says, hey, it's a ways back to your house. Why don't you just come home with me tonight? I am so there. Can we play Mario Party? That'd be good. Anyway. So Enoch never died. He just, he just was raptured. The first one raptured. He's gone. So maybe it's Enoch and Elijah. I don't think so. Because Enoch, Enoch never displayed the power to turn water into blood. Or to strike the earth with plagues. There was another Old Testament prophet who did that. You know who I'm talking about. Moses. Moses. Witness number two. I believe, personally, that it will be Moses. Elijah and Moses. The two greatest prophets 
of Israel. Why Moses? Well, he turned the Nile to blood. He brought in the ten plagues. And who stood alongside Elijah and Jesus transfigured on the mountaintop? It was Moses. Look, this wonderful picture. There's something more to the transfiguration than just a moment of glory for the apostles to see, gang. Jesus, Elijah, Moses. Two witnesses. Two witnesses. That must have been amazing, by the way. The transfiguration. Talk about a summit of prophets. Talk about a holy staff meeting. Where they're all up there and they're talking together. And Elijah and Moses, are, they're encouraging and they're comforting Jesus. And as they speak together, think about what they represented on that mountaintop. Elijah representing the proclamation of prophets. Representing the prophetic. Moses representing the law. So you've got the law and the prophets and standing in between them, Jesus Christ, who is the picture of grace. Amazing. He's the grace of God. He was proclaimed by the prophets, by the way, and he's illuminated by the law. But also, there's something else about Moses, this interesting little reference point in the book of Jude. I said last week I would, I would share with you. So here we go. Having to do with Moses, there's a funky little argument between Michael and Satan. Michael the archangel. Scripture talks about Michael from time to time. Well, apparently Michael and Satan got into it. They had a little argument. Actually, Satan was arguing. Michael was standing back and just saying, the Lord rebuke you. I'm not getting into it. This is between you and God. The Lord rebuke you. Listen to this. Jude verse 9. Michael the archangel. When he disputed with the devil, argued about the body of Moses. And did not dare pronounce against him a railing judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. Now here's what's great about this little verse. We have no idea what it's talking about. Jude inserts this thing as if we all know. And then just continues on talking about what he's talking about. And we kind of go, wait a minute, hit the brakes. What was that? Michael and, and Satan had an argument about the body of Moses. What is that, Jude? And no one knows. And Jude doesn't tell us. All we know, gang, is that it happened. We can kind of think about it, though. We can ask some questions. Why would Satan want the body of Moses? We haven't gotten there in our Old Testament studies yet, but gang, do you know who buried Moses? God did. The Bible tells us God buried Moses himself. <laughs> that must have been some funeral. God, no one knows where Moses was buried. No one knows where his body lay. Only the Lord knows where his body is. Why would Satan be in an argument with Michael about the body of Moses? Why would Moses' body matter to Satan? And I'll tell you right now, it's because Satan does not want a mouth of a witness to open again. Satan wouldn't want Moses. He wants the body of Moses under his power, under his authority, to make sure that Moses stays silent and stays in the grave. Again, I'm just kind of surmising here. As you think about these things, it makes sense to me that he wants to shut the mouth of this witness. But think about Satan. He's really not as crafty as sometimes we might think he is. He's never quite understood that you cannot thwart the plans of God. When God says, this is what's going to happen, Satan can rail all he wants, but this is what's going to happen. And he doesn't understand that. And he kicks against it, and he fights it, and he tries to shift things and change things, and he doesn't have the power. And he never will have the power. By the way, I think it's likely that the same angel, that Michael, will be the one in Revelation 20, 
that grabs hold of Satan, binds him in chains, and he's the angel that gets to chuck Satan into the abyss during the millennium. I think it will be Michael. I could be wrong. Now, watch what happens to these two witnesses. Is it Moses? Is it Elijah? I think so. Is it absolutely? We can't say, but I really think it probably is. All the indicators point to these two great prophets. But something happens, which often happens to witnesses. Verse 7. When they have finished their testimony, the beast that comes up out of the abyss will make war with them and overcome them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which mystically is called Sodom and Egypt. And which city is that? Look at the last part where also their Lord was crucified. It's Jerusalem. It's Jerusalem. The witnesses are going to be brutally murdered in this place called Sodom, called Egypt. But what's interesting, something to note about these witnesses, is they are untouchable, absolutely immortal, until their testimony is done. Until their time is done. Same with you and me. You realize that? Until the time of our testimony is done, man, we are immortal. We're untouchable. Satan cannot take us out until God is ready for us to go. And if he doesn't want us to go before he comes back, before the rapture, hallelujah, this is what I'm hoping for, we're just going to last right on up to that. We will stand immortal gang until God is ready for us to be taken out or to take us out himself. I love what Gail Irwin says about this. He says, as long as your days are necessary to the Lord, you're invincible. But the moment your task is finished, a hangnail will kill you. <laughs> now, again, we know what this great city is because it's where our Lord was crucified. But why is it mystically called Sodom and Egypt? Very easy and very quickly, these two dark designations have meaning to them. Sodom is a picture of moral degradation. Sodom and Gomorrah, the two cities that were destroyed because of their absolute, and especially in the area of the sexual realm, so, so absolutely disgusting and so decadent that God just took them out. And now Jerusalem, Jerusalem is called Sodom. Why? Isaiah chapter 1, verse 10. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the instruction of our God, you people of Gomorrah. And God is talking to the Jews in Jerusalem. Jerusalem called Sodom? How can that be? Let's talk Spencer before we began, man. All I wanted to see when we went to Israel was Jerusalem. I wanted to get high up on the Mount of Olives and just look out over the holy city and just, well, just soak that up. And I did. And for Cheryl and I, it, it, it was incredible. It was overwhelming. It's emotional to see that city. Man, before we came into Jerusalem, and you'll have this experience if you go to Israel, you ride on a bus, you go under this tunnel, that tunnel's literally underneath the Mount of Olives, you come up on this hill, and if you look out the left side of the bus, and they did it, they just timed it to totally nail our emotions, because we came out at sunset, and so the entire city was golden, and it was just lit up, and it was gorgeous, and we came out, and they're playing on the radio, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, where's my I mean, I, I, I recommitted my life to Jesus seven times on that bus. It was incredible. That's all I wanted to see. And when I saw that, I'm like, the trip is complete. It's Sodom. It's Sodom. How can you call Jerusalem Sodom? In August of this year, World Pride 
I don't know if you've heard of World Pride. It's a global lesbian, gay, bisexual, transvestite organization. And they're holding a massive seven-day rally called Love Without Borders in Jerusalem. In Jerusalem. It's their host city. The holy city. And gang, the number of homosexuals alone in Jerusalem right now is absolutely stunning. World Pride has some headquarters there in Jerusalem. There's a house of Jerusalem, called or Jerusalem House, something like that, that is home for all of those who are wanting to just express who they are, however they want, in the holy city. Of course they would. Of course Satan would attack that. Of course he would try to undermine that one place, the place on the map, the one city in the entire earth that God says is the apple of my eye, that God says, I have chosen Jerusalem to be my own. Absolutely that's where Satan would try to be as most decadent as possible. August 06. This is about as defiant and high-handed as it gets. You want to get up in the face of God and just say, whatever, that's how to do it. World Pride, August 2006. Boy, that would be a great month just to get called up, wouldn't it? (laughs) Gang, Jerusalem is mystically called Sodom because of the moral degradation. It's also called Egypt. Why Egypt? Because it's a picture of materialism. Immorality in Sodom, materialism in Egypt, and sadly, gang, the lives of so many Jewish people returning to Israel today are more secular than spiritual. It's more about nationalism than it is about spiritualism. It's more carnal than it is Christ-seeking. And consider the people living in Jerusalem at the midpoint of the tribulation. What will it be like then? Prophetically and practically, these designations of Sodom and Egypt, they fit the picture. And so Jerusalem, that destroys, that murders these two holy prophets of the Lord, Sodom and Egypt, they will be martyred in the same city where their Lord, Jesus Christ, was martyred. Verse 9. Those from the... And this is, this is stunning. Those from the nations and the tribes and tongues... Or the peoples and tribes and tongues and nations will look at their dead bodies for three and a half days. Same amount of time they've been prophesying now. Three and a half days, representing three and a half years. And will not permit their dead bodies to be laid in a tomb... And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and celebrate. And they will send gifts to one another because these two prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth. How did they torment those who dwell on the earth? With righteousness. Because immorality hates righteousness. Hates the thought of repentance. Pride thinks that repentance is the last thing in the world you want to do. Bow your will to some God. And so the very message, even though it's a message of grace, repentance toward grace is rejected by people. They feel tormented by it. And so when these two prophets are taken out, oh, it's party time. It's the first anti-Christmas. They're giving gifts to each other. They're having a great time. For three and a half days, their bodies are left to rot in the sight of the world. And by the way, this is the only time you're going to see rejoicing in Jerusalem during the entire tribulation. At the martyrdom of these two witnesses. It's a sign of the horror and the depravity 
at this time. By the way, interesting thing to note here. It tells us that those from the peoples and tribes and tongues and nations will look at their dead bodies. The indication, and older commentaries had a real problem with this verse. The indication is worldwide people will watch these dead bodies lie there for three and a half days. Everyone will be able to see it. Fifty years ago that wouldn't have been possible. Didn't we just watch the entire Iraq war unfold before us? Don't we now, nightly on the news, we immediately can be there in real time watching the battles take place in the Middle East only with the advent of CNN and Fox News and MSNBC and the Internet can we now, wherever we are in the world, watch anything happening in the world and imagine this, if you will, during the tribulation. Imagine people sitting at their TV sets while CNN is projecting this little picture up in the corner of the dead bodies of these two prophets. This is Geraldo Rivera reporting live from Jerusalem. Not saying he's going to be there, I don't know. That's between Geraldo and God. But on location, I'm on location here in Jerusalem where the two dead bodies of the two prophets, the torment of the world, lie. They're still lying there, reeking and rotting, and wait a minute, wait a minute, something's happening. What's going on here? Live. Not only will the people see the death of these two prophets, they will see the resurrection of these two prophets. And more than that, they will watch as an even more amazing event occurs. The two witnesses will be resurrected before their eyes and then taken up. Raptured. There will be yet another rapture. Verse 11. After the three and a half days, the breath of life from God came into them. They stood on their feet, and great fear fell upon those who were watching them. Yeah, I bet. Verse 12. And they heard a loud voice come from heaven saying to them, Come up here! I love that phrase. You know what? I mean, and, and if Cheryl ever wants to freak me out, if I'm downstairs, you know, playing video games with Corey, all she has to do is shout, Come up here! And I'm like, what? As a female voice, that might be a little weird. Why? Anyway, but okay. Come up here! And then they went up into heaven in the cloud, and their enemies watched them. Everybody's going to see it. And at that hour, gang, there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. Seven thousand people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe is past. Behold, the third woe is coming quickly. Now, I remind you quickly of something I shared last week. That the rabbi's tunnel in Jerusalem, also called the secret tunnel, runs directly under the Muslim area of the old city, the Muslim quarter which we're told is roughly one-tenth of the city. And in this great earthquake, we watch as a tenth of the city fell. Now, I'm just presenting that as a possibility, as a thought, that it may very well be that tenth of the city, that Muslim area, that falls in this massive earthquake. The other thing to note, though, is that 7,000 people who are killed are literally named people. Not just people, named people, celebrities, stars, well-knowns, important people, they're going down in this earthquake. 7,000, twice the amount of people lost on September 11th in this one moment. By the way, you might want to know that the big one that's coming is not going to be connected to the San Andreas Fault. The big one is going to hit Jerusalem. Geologists can tell you today that the greatest fault line in the world is known as the Great Rift Valley. The Great Rift Valley is in the Jordan Valley and it runs straight down the middle of Israel down to North Africa. That 
is where they expect the big one to hit. Uh huh. Uh huh. Yep. The second woe is now past. The third is coming. Now listen. We're going to stop here tonight. There's one last thing I want to tell you, and I want us to think about this. We, I, I want to go on and do the rest. There's not much more in the chapter, but by itself, it's so powerful and amazing. We'll save it for next week. But these two witnesses, the two olive trees anointed with the Holy Spirit, the two lampstands bringing the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ, possibly Moses and Elijah themselves, these invincible prophets who are invincible, though persecuted until they die, then raptured, then resurrected. Gang, we've seen deaths like these in recent months in Iraq. We think, how could it be that people could kill someone and then if that's not bad enough, parade their dead body through the streets? We've seen that happen. You recall the story recently of the two Israeli soldiers who accidentally made a wrong turn into Palestinian territory. And they were brutalized and beaten to death. And then their dead bodies were dragged throughout the Palestinian cities. And interesting, we see from America, we watch things like that happen, and we go, boy, that's just a cultural thing with the Palestinians. What do you think the news would tell us if that happened in Israel? If it was two Palestinians who made a wrong turn into a Jewish sector and were beaten to death and their bodies dragged through the old city? Can you imagine the uproar in the United Nations? Can you imagine people all across America, our great land, saying, Horrendous! Terrible! How can this be? Take out Israel! And yet it happens in the Palestinian territories. and well, It's a tragedy, but those people have it tough. Two martyrs. Scandalous, bloody, brutal deaths. Deaths that are designed to dishonor, to discredit, to debase and to shame these two witnesses, Marteo, these two martyrs. Now, gang, listen. And I think we really need to understand this as Christians. 2 Timothy 3.12 Indeed, all who desire to, get to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Now, I've said this before. It's not all those who desire to live in Christ Jesus who will be persecuted. It's all those who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus who will be persecuted. There are Christians all over the world. People who get up, they go to church every Sunday. They show up to Bible study. They may be on worship teams. They may be involved in ministry, doing different things, but will never truly be persecuted as Christians because, well, you know, they're happy to just kind of be doing what they're doing. They're certainly not going to be talking about Jesus at work because, man, you do it there. You could get fired for that. Uh-huh. Well, I could lose friends for that. That's right. I could have a teacher at school kick me out of the class for... Yeah. If you desire to live godly in Christ Jesus, you can bank on it. You don't have to. You can live in Christ Jesus. You can be saved. You have yourself. You have grace. Let me just tell you, you've got grace and you can quietly just come to church and not really talk about Jesus outside of it. I don't think it's pleasing to the Lord, but you know, there's nothing in the Bible that says if you don't tell about Jesus, well, actually there is. <laughs> there is one verse. Matthew 10.32. Jesus says, Therefore, everyone who confesses me before men, I will also confess him before my Father who is in heaven. But you know what else he said? And he who denies me before men, I will deny him before my Father who is in heaven. So when you really think about it, the idea of not living godly in Christ Jesus really isn't an option if you understand Jesus. If you understand the Lord. If you love Him, then you will speak His name. 
<laughs> and Spencer, you're just killing me. I gotta share this. Now I gotta share this. I shared a few weeks ago that you're not going to be able to bring Bibles on the Temple Mount. If you go to Jerusalem, you're not allowed to bring a Bible up there. Spencer is already thinking about how he can cause a riot up there. (laughs) He wants to bring his Bible. And just a few minutes ago, we're talking about Calvary. And I said, well, you know, it's not easy to reach. And there are fences. And there is some private property up there. And he's like, I'm climbing the fence. And I believe it. And so I'm assigning two people to be with Spencer at all times when we're in Israel. (laughs) But I love that heart. Because that's the heart that says, throw caution to the wind. I am a child of Jesus Christ. I am a witness. I can't help but say and talk about what I have seen and what he's done in my life. I'm a witness. Marteo. And I don't care if that means I'm going to be persecuted for it. I will confess the name of Jesus Christ before men because He died for me. He rose for me. And He confesses my name before the Father on a daily basis. I will speak His name. I will be a witness. God says, who shall we send? Who are we going to send? Who's going to go and speak the name? Who's going to stand up for Jesus in this dark, dark world? And gang, if you and I will stand as witnesses today, we will have a similar experience with these two prophetic martyrs. Up on their feet, right up out of their sandals, the two witnesses will go home. They will be raptured, they will be with the Lord again, and so will you. Do you want to be a witness? I encourage you to talk to God about that, to pray to the Father, and ask Him to give you the Spirit of a witness God I just want us to be a witnessing church and Lord we understand tonight that witnessing is not knocking on a door it's not handing out tracts at a local supermarket truly witnessing is speaking the name of Jesus wherever we are regardless of where we are and God we need boldness to do this and so like the church in the first century We pray, Holy Spirit, that you'd come upon us with boldness and authority by your word and by your spirit, not by ourselves, Father, not by our own good works or righteousness, but by the power of your spirit in us. And because we're students of the word, we know what your word says. Would you embolden us to witness the name of Jesus, to be martyrs, not God-like. People think of martyrs today, suicide bombers who are Amazingly called freedom fighters. That's not a witness. That's not a martyr. But Jesus, if we could be among those who have the honor to speak your name even to the point of persecution, and yes, Father, even if it means so, that we speak your name to the point of losing our lives. God, I want to be a witness. Make us witnesses. In Jesus' name, amen.